Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast for our latest episode of Maritime in Minutes. You are listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News, and Gary Howard, Europe editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Maritime in Minutes is our monthly podcast where we pick out some of the most topical news stories from the world of maritime on Sea Trade Maritime News. And today we're covering June 2023. We've got quite a bit to be getting on with here, so I'm going to pass straight over to Gary to get us kicked off. Yep, nothing better to start a podcast than a big dollop of gloom and doom. I'm kicking off with a report from DNV on cybersecurity, in which maritime professionals effectively cried that we're all going to die. The report was based on a survey in which 60% of respondents said they expect cyber attacks to lead to ship collisions within the next few years, 68% expect groundings, and 76% expect the closure of a major waterway. And there are plenty more of those shocking examples in that report as well. The increased awareness of cyber threats comes as the digitalization of the industry continues and operational technologies end up closer and closer to networks. I had a quick chat with Svante Einerson, sorry, I probably pronounced that wrong, head of maritime security at DNV, and he told me that companies are increasingly starting the conversation about securing not only their information technology, but also their operational technology too. So the technological components that actually do things like move ships, for instance. Unsurprisingly, the report says there's an underinvestment in cybersecurity and general preparedness is not where it should be. And recommendations include treating cybersecurity issues on the same priority level as safety issues, which I thought was particularly strong coming from a classification society, given their safety first approach to pretty much everything that they do. Anything less gloomy for you for your week one pick, Marcus? Um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily that much less gloomy, at least not when it started out, this particular story, and it does involve a major waterway. My pick is a story that did kind of look increasingly worrying, but actually by the end of the month has turned out to be not as bad as we feared. We've actually had a couple of those over the last few weeks. This story ran across the month, but I'm going to pick it up in early June when we reported that the Panama Canal was taking water-saving measures in the face of an unprecedented drought. The end of May should have seen the end of Panama's dry season and a lengthy rainy season, but it didn't, and rather the country was faced with its worst recorded ever drought. In terms of the Panama Canal, this means draft restrictions, which equate to cargo reductions, which obviously is bad news for shipping. By the 20th of June, as the drought worsened, Sea Trade Maritime News correspondent Michelle LeBrut reported on more draft restrictions and the possibility of what were described as drastic measures with cuts in the numbers of daily vessel transits for the canal. This has not as yet happened, and finally, in some good news, a few days later, the rains came and further draft restrictions have been postponed and hopefully won't be needed, although the authorities say they are continuing to monitor the situation. However, it underscores the importance of the water-saving measures the canal authorities are taking for the longer term, especially as we likely to face more extreme weather in the coming years. And Gary, over to you for week two. Paul Bartlett covered a Lloyd's Register webinar in mid-June, and the headline was, It's Methanol's Time to Shine. LR Count's 
29 methanol-fueled vessels in service, plus another 112 on order. Clarkson's apparently estimates around 1,200 ships could run on the fuel by 2030. Methanol's main selling points are its ease of handling, thanks to being a liquid at room temperature, unlike some of its competitors, although it does have a slightly lower energy density than our current fuels, which is a pretty common theme. There's already some sort of infrastructure for methanol at around 100 ports, but a critical point on that is the lack of availability of green methanol, on which most of the fuel's environmental claims are based. I'm going to wedge in a couple of other stories here, but I'm not going to give Marcus the extra work of linking them in the notes. If you go to seatrademaritime.com, stick in methanol in the search bar, you'll find them. Maersk ordered another six methanol vessels, bringing its tally to 25 in the order book. I think its first is due to be delivered later this summer. It also announced a retrofit program for some of its ships with MAN Energy Solutions. Stenoline announced it was working with Vartzilla to retrofit some of its ferries with dual-fuel methanol capabilities. And Stena actually worked with Lloyd's Register on the first methanol fuel retrofit in 2015 on Stena Germanica. So it all it all ties up quite nicely. Yeah, methanol really does seem to be picking up. You are seeing quite a significant number of orders now and those retrofits as well. Yeah, and I've said it before, the issue is going to be getting hold of the green methanol, which appears to all be being gobbled up by Maersk, judging by the... I think nine or ten supply agreements that it's got in place already. Well, it's still got to ship it, actually, strangely enough, using um, conventionally fueled vessels to where they want it to be. But they apparently factor that in to how green it actually is. What's your week two pick, Marcus? Now, for week two for myself. Now, I mentioned we had a couple of stories that eventually turned out to be not as bad as they had been feared. And my week two pick is another one of these. In this case, it was the labor negotiations at U.S. West Coast ports between the unions, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, or ILWU, and the employers represented by the Pacific Maritime Association, or PMA. These talks had dragged on for 13 months, with a previous contract long since expired, and by the start of June, negotiations appeared to have pretty much broken down. The ILWU started localized actions, in the form of ghost lows, one of which saw the port of Seattle's container terminal shuttered over a weekend, as a bitter war of words ensued between the two sides. Fears of a repeat of the PMA's 11-day lockout in 2002 that closed all US West Coast ports and caused supply chain chaos were becoming greater by the day. The Biden administration decided to intervene and sent Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su to San Francisco to get parties back around the table and talking. It was to prove surprisingly successful, with a tentative agreement between the unions and the PMA within days. It is, though, at this stage, a tentative agreement that still requires to be ratified by the members of the individual unions uh, ports along the US West Coast. Anyway, within hours of it being announced, we recorded a podcast episode with Zanetta analyst Peter Sand to discuss the whys and wherefores of what has happened and what the future might hold. And it's well worth a listen. If you're enjoying the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice. Now, Gary, moving on to week three, I think you have a story closer to home. 
Yeah, this one's from the UK, and you and I had a bit of a, a chuckle about this as I was writing it on Teams, as I remember. So this story is based on a UK government response to a report by the House of Commons Transport Committee on the government's Maritime 2050 strategy. It's all reports and responses all the way down. So that report found that the strategy was muddled and needed focus and clarification, along with more specific recommendations for improving UK maritime policy. Well, the government response to the response to its report was pretty positive, accepting many of the recommendations and vowing to set up a new maritime council, which will take over the job of coordinating the maritime strategy response and keeping tabs on progress with annual reports instead of biennial ones now. Council members will come from government departments and industry and will be given the job of holding the government to account, apparently. There was a bit of a running theme in the government's responses that the real answers seemed to be contained in reports that were coming later this year. The government is set to publish a new clean maritime plan, which will answer any of the questions raised in the report on the environmental front. And KPIs are due to be published for the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency soon under their three-year strategic growth programme, which will answer some questions about the future of the UK flag and how it can be grown. Bad news on the crew welfare front, however, is the government still plans to introduce its seafarers welfare charter on a voluntary basis and then actively monitor the situation to see if it needs to uh, put in a firmer hand. But the report very much said that that should be enforced more rigorously. I came out of the response with a slight feeling that lots of these meetings and reports were written so that the government could do what it planned anyway. Hopefully the clean maritime plan and MCA targets will show some more ambition and leadership. Marcus, over to you. I'm going to look at something very different, in part a story that you'd have needed to have been buried under a rock not to have noticed, and that was the global media frenzy around the missing submersible Titan and its billionaire passengers. The ultimately and unfortunately futile search and rescue operation was on a huge scale involving multiple vessels, I counted at least 10 in the list that I saw, ROVs, aircrafts, and it lasted for days, covering an area of over 10,000 square miles. Now, this is not really my focus so much here, but to contrast it rather with the less well-reported incident on the opposite side of the US on the west coast of California in the same week. 25-year-old Singaporean second officer was lost overboard from a bulk carrier, African Cardinal, which was headed into the US west coast. The search and rescue operation involved two vessels and a helicopter, covered some 200 square miles, and was called off after just under 15 hours. US Coast Guard Chief Warrant Officer John Rose, search and rescue mission coordinator for the Long Beach Los Angeles sector, said, We extend our deepest sympathies to this crew member's friends and family. The decision to suspend an active search is never easy. And it is only made after exhaustive efforts are to find the missing person. The difference in scale between the two search and rescue operations you know, are really stark, and it's something we highlighted on CJ Maritime News. As one shipping executive and former seafarer commented on that story on LinkedIn, I am sure we can do better for our seafarers. A link to the full story, Tale of Two Search and Rescues, Titan and the African Cardinal, will be in the show notes. And I'd recommend you go and have a read of that and just sort of just, it's, it's an interesting compare and contrast. Moving to week four, Gary, you have a story that's uh, putting shipping itself in the media spotlight. 
Yeah, and when this podcast comes out, we'll be into week two of what is a crucial fortnight for maritime regulation at the IMO. I read a quick summary of what's happening at the IMO and the key decisions being made at MEPC 80, as well as the intersessional working group that's happening the week before, which is this week. There is extra pressure on the regulator this time around, as this meeting is where the IMO needs to set its overarching ambition for decarbonisation in the maritime industry. You'll probably be aware that we've already got one of those. The IMO's initial greenhouse gas strategy is up for review, with many hoping and expecting an increase in ambition from the 50% drop in total emissions by 2050 in the initial strategy. I believe that's compared to 2008 levels. There are many supporters for a net zero ambition by 2050, with added checkpoints at 2030 and 2040 to make sure that progress is being made and something's actually happening. Fuel lifecycle analysis is also on the table. Really an important decision to be made there, which will effectively dictate how we as an industry account for the emissions of the fuels that we use. You'll have all heard by now the well-to-wake and tank-to-wake issue, and making that decision will have big implications, as will the choice of medium and long-term measures both technical and economic, that are taken forwards at IMO. I can pretty much guarantee that there will be an update on this in next month's Maritime in Minutes, if not a podcast on the outcomes in the meantime. So keep an eye on the site for the outcomes and no doubt a whole heap of industry reaction as well. Indeed. There's obviously going to be more coverage on this and we do actually have a podcast planned on this topic, but clearly we don't know exactly what we're going to be talking about yet until the meetings have concluded. But I will promise you it's going to be a really great guest. And for the last story of this episode, I'm going to stay with the IMO and an event described by Secretary-General Hitak Lim as a momentous day for the UN organisation. This momentous day was that Bangladesh and Liberia had both ratified the Hong Kong Convention on Ship Recycling, and that would result in it coming into force on the 26th of June 2025. Now, the Recycling Convention is known as the Hong Kong Convention as it was adopted at an IMO diplomatic conference in Hong Kong in May 2009. Yes, you heard me correctly. 2009. So that means that this important legislation to protect workers and the environment in the shipbreaking yards will have taken some 16 years to come into force. There are a couple of things listeners can draw from this. Well, one, that the IMO can move extremely slowly and that a lack of urgency, combined with what some see as a lack of ambition, then results in others taking action on their own. So in this case, in the meantime, we have seen the European Union draw up its own set of rules in the form of the EU Ship Recycling Regulation, which is considerably more stringent than the Hong Kong Convention. We've also seen the industry itself acting ahead of the IMO's convention and certifying yards to the standards of the Hong Kong Convention, even though it wasn't actually enforced yet. Now, this is obviously a really good thing, and hats off to the industry for taking the lead here. But that really isn't what should be happening. To be relevant, the IMO should be the one that's taking the lead here, which is very much where people are looking for the whole debate on emissions for the IMO to take that lead. That brings us to the end of this episode of Maritime in Minutes. If you want to know more about this story and all the others mentioned in this podcast, the links are in the show notes. Or just head over to ctrade-maritime.com to read these and all the latest maritime news. 
Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe on the app of your choice to never miss an episode. We look forward to joining you on the next episode of the C-Trade Maritime Podcast. <laughs>